Using our creativity is therapeutic, not because we need to be fixed, but because we need to be expressive. Julia Cameron. Hello, and welcome to Redeeming Disorder Podcast. My name is Laura Bochansky, and this is episode seven of season two. And today we interview someone who has tremendous experience with talking about mental health and has a really interesting take on diagnosing and treating what the medical world calls mental illness. If you have gone to see a counselor or doctor um, for your mental health or needed help in any way, I think you'll especially find his views thought-provoking. There's a lot of debate around how we should treat and talk about mental illness, and as you'll hear, there's even a question to some as to whether mental illness even exists. So while I know this is a bit of a hot topic and even controversial, I just encourage you to have an open mind and a willingness to learn. So with that in mind, let's dive on into the interview. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, where we delve into the world of mental disorder. To overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Okay, our guest today is Dr. Eric Maisel. He's a prolific author. He has a doctorate in counseling psychology and is widely regarded as a creativity coach. He helps a lot of different types of artists, and he has written very frequently for Psychology Today. Um, and also one of his books, Rethinking Depression, questions our current conception around mental disorder, which he explores further in the more recent book he wrote, uh, The Future of Mental Health. And so definitely someone with a wealth of knowledge and interesting perspectives on disorders. So Eric, really excited to talk to you and welcome to our podcast. Lovely to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm kind of fangirling here because I've been looking at your stuff and I'm just so excited to talk to you, especially about creativity. But um, I think your perspective is going to be awesome. So thanks for being cool. here. We can we can go in any direction. Well, I thought we could just start with uh, sort of what your more recent work as far as the future of mental health book was about and how that intersects with what we do on this podcast, which, and, you know, throughout, we'd love to hear your anecdotes on creativity and meaning and life purpose and everything else you've explored in your work. But to jump into the mental health side of things, um, your book talks about a current mental health crisis, as you put it, and your ideas about how we could better approach therapy and helping people. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what you see that crisis as? The two dominant paradigms are the pseudo-medical paradigm, mm -hmm. which is the paradigm promoted by the American Psychiatrics Association and reified in their book, the DSM, right. where they claim that certain things called mental disorders exist. I and like-minded people think it's merely a shopping catalog for professionals, which allows them to make money, that there's no underlying reasons for believing that mental disorders exist. The phenomena exist, sadness mm -hmm. exists, mm -hmm. despair exists, anxiety exists, 
hearing voices exist. Lots of things exist. But to then add on the mental disorder label does nothing except allow you to provide chemicals, which I would not call medications because for them to be medications, there need to be an underlying illness. There needs to be some logic here, some logical connection between illness and medication. So I think that what's now being offered are chemicals with powerful effects rather than medication. And this is especially egregious with respect to kids. Millions and millions of kids mm -hmm. are being put on chemicals for no particular reason except that their parents or teachers don't like their behaviors. So that's dominant paradigm number one, the pseudo-medical one. Dominant paradigm number two is the expert talk one, namely psychotherapy. The idea that, no, these aren't medical problems, these are somehow psychological problems, kind of out of context of life, but somehow you've caught some mental flu, psychologically speaking, and we can talk that out of you. Yeah. And I think that, I think that model is flawed too. It's better than the chemical one because talk is always good. That's better than the medical one, but it's still flawed. It's still a top down. I'm an expert with certain degrees and licenses and you're a, so to speak, patient. And I don't believe in that model either. I think we need a new helping model where people are sitting at the same level, mm -hmm. so to speak, sitting eye to eye talking about what's going on and what might help. Well, so that's a like long from beginning to uh, the answer. <laughs> sure. No, and that it's a big uh, answer with a lot to unpack, and I want to get into all of it as far as you know, medication slash chemicals, um, our current methods of treating people, etc. Um, but I just want to point out, you know, one thing when I was reading about you and reading some of your blog posts that drew me to want to hear more is it's not as if you know you do a lot of your mission seems to be to. Uh, care for the people who are being diagnosed or who are having these types of ailments and that you're not denying anyone's symptoms or experiences. You just, it's really a question of how we appraise them and how we're describing them. And it seems like it's the, the labels that, uh, pose a big problem in that you, um, you acknowledge symptoms and experiences, but the organization of these things into labels you know, by the DSM-5 or whatever source or authority you're looking to, um, it seems as if you see that as presenting a lot of problems. Um, yeah, I think it's illegitimate. It's more than presenting problems. I, I think it's an illegitimate um, transaction. The idea of diagnosing on the basis of symptom pictures makes no sense. If in real medicine you did that and didn't try to look for underlying causes, mm -hmm. you'd be, so to speak, fired instantly. You can't turn a cough into coughitis. You, you can't turn a burn into burnitis. You need to know what's going on underneath. And all the DSM does is turn these symptoms into some nameable thing. Right. So for me, it, it goes beyond that this is flawed or not quite okay or what have you. I think it's an illegitimate enterprise and it really needs to change on the face of it. If anybody is, is interested enough in what we're talking about to go to the DSM-5 and look up their definition of a mental disorder, you'll be appalled by what nonsense you yeah. read. Well, I know, so, you know, with major depressive disorder, for example, it has nine symptoms of major depressive disorder. And if you fit at least five of the nine symptoms, then you have the condition or you could be diagnosed by someone. Um, and I, I definitely agree in that 
as I said, you know, it's problematic. And I, I think where I'm still trying to learn more is whether or not it's illegitimate because I see the issue where it doesn't make sense. You know, if you have someone go into a psychiatrist's office and they have four of nine symptoms, they're not depressed, but then all of a sudden they have uh, a big change in weight or insomnia. Now they fit the criteria and they are. Um, I agree, you know, that makes no sense. That focus on symptom pictures, which you're actually a little hooked into too, it's interesting mm-hmm. because I think everyone is hooked into the symptom picture model, is part of the problem. It, let's say I hate life. Let's say I think life is a cheat. Somewhere along the line, I, I maybe it was because of my upbringing or poverty or my folks weren't okay or whatever the set of circumstances, I've decided life is a cheat and I've kind of half given up. So I kind of half sit on the sofa all the time. Here are the symptoms I'm going to have. I'm going to gain 163 pounds. I'm going to have a certain kind of affect X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And we could look at those symptoms. Wow, you've gained 163 pounds. Do you have a hormonal disorder? What's going on here? But the extent to which we're not looking at that you've given up on life, we've completely missed the boat on what's going on with you. So it wouldn't matter if we had five symptoms, 103 symptoms, four out of nine, six out of 12. It wouldn't matter mm-hmm. because we're not at the DSM is silent on causes. Right. Imagine an actual medical encyclopedia silent on causes. It's a crazy idea, actually. It's also silent on treatment, which is another crazy idea. But it's silent on both causes and treatment. It's completely locked in to this symptom picture idea. So that's for me the big point is that to the extent to which we're not looking at the causes of things, that's why this is completely illegitimate. So if you're not going to look at medication, you're not going to do talk therapy, how does one look at the root cause? Well, you're still going to talk, but you're not going to consider it expert talk. You're going to consider it more me to you and you to me. It's going to be more cooperative. That isn't to say that lots of psychotherapists aren't cooperative and aren't enlisting their clients' um, insights and wisdom, but a lot aren't. A lot have a top-down method. They have a method. Maybe they're a cognitive therapist, and they're going to, in eight sessions, teach you how to deal with distorted cognitions. Well, maybe your distorted cognitions are just not distorted, but they arise because of how you're looking at life. So I would still go for talk, but I would go for lots of other humane things, including all the things we might name about relationships, and especially looking at a person's meaning and life purpose needs. Mm. Because if a, per- if a person hasn't yet made the paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning, that person's still looking for something, then that person's bound to be troubled by not finding it because he or she's not going to find it. Meaning is for making. So there's that piece, and then there's the life purpose piece. If you're looking for the purpose of life, again, you're not going to find it. They're just our life purpose choices, the choices we make. So if a person has not articulated his or her life purpose choices, he or she doesn't know what he's living for. So those are things that a new helper, psychotherapists are not asking these questions. Even existential psychotherapists who one would think might be interested in meaning and life purpose are actually not that interested in it. Mm-hmm. That would be a big shift if when I'm trying to help you, you and I were talking about what actually matters to you. Interesting. I mean, I know you do talk in rethinking depression about a term existential intelligence. Is that sort of what you're referring to now and figuring out where your meaning might lie? 
Yeah, we, I, if you buy the multiple intelligences model, and I don't know if I buy it, but it's a useful metaphor, perhaps. <laughs> if you buy the multiple intelligence metaphor, then there must be some intelligence that's guiding the intelligences, or else what would guide, maybe we have artistic intelligence, but what's guiding our hand? Maybe we have a linguistic intelligence, but what's guiding our speech? There's got to be something there that is our motivation and our, and our linchpin and our connection, our connect, connectivity. And that's what I'm calling existential intelligence. Existential therapy used to be mostly about certain kinds of anxiety, fear of death, what have you. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it a much different way and a bigger picture of individuals actually announcing and deciding what matters to them, what's important, and then figuring out how to get those life purposes onto their daily to-do list, which is actually very difficult. Most people are running around doing errands and doing their day job and having responsibilities. And even if they know what their life purposes might be, they don't get to live them on a daily basis. If you're not living your daily, if you're not living your life purposes on a daily basis, you're bound to be sad. Mm-hmm. So you think, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Laura. Oh, I was just curious. I've read, you know, The Meaning of Life by Viktor Frankl. And um, has that influenced a lot of your thinking about that, about the need for the meaning of life? No, he's a seeker of meaning, actually. Oh, okay, and, sorry. And, no, there's not, nothing to be sorry about. It's that mm-hmm. there's a distinction here that most people don't know. And that is for thousands of years, we've had the metaphor of seeking meaning. Mm-hmm. It's it's our predominant metaphor that meaning's up up there at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet or in a book, the Bible or the DSM or someplace. Meaning's out there. We haven't made the switch to the idea of influencing the existence of meaning, of making meaning. So Viktor Frankl is essentially from the spiritual seeking meaning, life has meaning place. Mm-hmm. And I'm from the place that meaning is a subjective psychological experience and not actually that important compared to choosing one's life purposes. Mm. Hmm. So choosing one's life purposes and meaning is something that you don't seek. Um, Does that amount to sort of self-awareness in knowing oneself and what meaning to choose? That's certainly a starting point. If you ask a person, what have you actually experienced as meaningful, they're going to have to stop and think. It's not going to be at the tip of their tongue. They may think it's the seven years they spent in their PhD program or something, but when they think about it, they may well say, that wasn't very meaningful at all. It was drudgery and dutiful, and I did it. Yeah. What's actually meaningful is holding my child's hand crossing the street. That's what I experience as meaningful, or saying hello to someone, or saying or hugging someone goodbye. Those are the things I experience as meaningful. Most people have not thought through what they actually experience as meaningful. If you haven't thought it through, you don't know to replicate those things. You know, you don't know that those are the things you're after if you haven't thought that through. So I think we have a long way to go in, in the areas of meaning and life purpose before people have even a vocabulary to use to help them understand how to think about these issues. Is this what you would say to someone who, you know, someone comes to you and says, hey, I have this disorder or I have that disorder, you know, they are abiding by the paradigm that they have depression, for instance, or anxiety. Would you give this advice about me about finding purpose or not finding purpose, but choosing purpose um, to someone regardless of what that condition was that they named? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is that if people will not come to me for that because I work as a creativity coach, not as a therapist, and they're going to be coming to me with, I'm not getting my novel written. 
Mm. So the the depression dash sadness dash despair piece will come up sort of sideways a little right. ways into the work. So I'm not I'm not that person. And I'm not saying you are a therapist. I'm just no. saying if someone were wondering. Well, someone were wondering, but I think the way you said it was if someone came to me and I just, I just yeah. want to be clear that I don't do therapy and and person I would not take if someone were coming to me with can you help me with my depression? I wouldn't take that person. Mm-hmm. Cuz that person's already because I'm doing creativity coaching, not therapy. And they're just legal. There are legal issues here, okay. unfortunately. Yeah. So th- that's a, that was a semi-unnecessary thing to say, but I needed to say it because my client is coming to me with creativity issues. And then all the mental health issues will surface like within three and a half minutes. Hmm. But still, that's not why they were coming in, so to speak. What kind of mental health issues arise with the creatives that you work with? Anxiety. Yeah, I mean, you could you could pick among anxiety, depression, and addiction as the big three. Those would those would be the ones most predominant. Anxiety threads through the creative process, so we're not just talking about performance anxiety and stage fright, but all kinds of anxieties having to do with. If you think about it, creating is having to make one choice after another. That's what creativity is, and choosing provokes anxiety. The very act of having to make a choice provokes anxiety. So there's necessary anxiety threading through the process by virtue of the fact that we have to make one choice after another. Many people block because they don't want to make the next choice. They don't want to actually send their character to Paris or Zanzibar. They're still on the fence about where to send their character. So they take six months off or three years off. They block around having to make choices. Mm-hmm. So anxiety would be number one, and it comes up in many different guises and then i would just call it life challenges or number two that is having to deal with not enough income with a mate who may be bad mouthing you because you're not bringing in income etc all the all the life challenges of a creative person then would come probably the thing always called depression now that i would call primarily existential sadness namely the meaning draining out of the enterprise of what they're doing that, that is, that it's hard to support the idea that another photograph is needed or another poem is needed or another short story is needed. For creative folks, it's actually hard to keep that afloat, that idea that yet another one of these billions of things that are out there is needed. So there's lots of existential sadness when the meaning drains out of the enterprise of what you're doing. And then fourth, if that's fourth, would be addictions. Hmm. Okay. So... Uh, just to clarify, you said the meaning draining out of what a creative person is doing. And then you also said knowing that there's another thing that's necessary. Does that mean sort of uh, knowing that they're working towards something meaningful? There's a lot to say there. Let me see if I can tease it apart. When the meaning drains out of an enterprise, if you believe it's still one of your life purposes, you have to reinvest meaning. You have to say, this still matters to me. Mm-hmm. So that inner conversation might be, wow, this poem isn't working, and who needs another poem? No, this matters to me. Poetry matters in the universe. This is one of my life purposes. I'm writing this poem. So I'm condensing into a few sentences a certain kind of conversation that a creative person needs to have with herself a lot about, I don't know why I'm doing this. Oh, wait, I do know why I'm doing this. So that's A. B is... We can't just be creative folks. We need other life purposes. We end up being too cold, alone, and isolated 
if we put all of our life purpose eggs into the creativity basket. So I'm also inviting dash demanding dash asking clients to let me know what their other life purposes might be. Let me put a period there because there's lots more to say about what to do, how to repair meaning when meaning drains out of the thing that you're doing. I've often heard um, many people just talk about how there's been studies done about how we need relationships and how that really impacts people's health and their happiness. Would you say that relationships, the quality and the amount affect people's meaning and life purpose as well? I think it's one of our top life purposes. And I think, well, Freud said, uh, what, to love and to work were the two things that human beings need. I think we're yeah. saying it a slightly different way. Our work is our creative work, and the place we get to love is actually in our work, but also in relationships. But I think that there are probably 10 big life purposes, and if we're not living all 10, we may not feel like we're living a fulfilled life. And I'm not going to try to name them all, but creativity would be one for a creative person. Relationships would be one. I think activism is one because I think we see, I think we're interested in justice and injustice and, and good and evil and fairness and unfairness. And I think that if we don't put our two cents in there, we're not making ourselves proud. We're not feeling like we're living the life we intend to live. So I think activism is important. I think service is a life purpose. I think for a young person, maybe service isn't such a life necessary life purpose choice. But I think as we get older, the idea of being of service starts to matter more. Parenthetically, our life purposes change over time. Some things become more sure. important. Some things recede in importance. So again, this is a long-winded way of saying relationships matter, creating matter. But I think that there's a kind of battery of life purposes that if we live all of those, we're actually living the life we intend to live. Mm. And, you know, I, it's an interesting idea about how that can correspond to someone's mental health in, you know, having meaning and being fulfilled in at least a number of those ways. Um, and I am just kind of curious about what your picture of a better relationship with mental health would look like that you talked about, you know, how therapy might be person to person rather than from an expert. Um, does medication have any role in what you would imagine would be a better system of appraising mental health? If we call them chemicals with powerful effects, I can't buy the medication word because I don't believe there's an illness being treated. Okay. So, but if, if we allow the phrase chemicals with powerful effects, then absolutely there's a place for chemicals with powerful effects. There's a place for scotch. There's a place for marijuana. There's a place for things that change our relationship to life. I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence there, but we've been using chemicals with powerful effects forever for all kinds of reasons. Right. If you are so low that you are suicidal and some chemical with a powerful effect allows you the spaciousness to not commit suicide and think about alternatives, that chemical with a powerful effect has got to be worthwhile. Mm. So there are circumstances, but then there are lots of questions. There's, are we talking about the placebo effect of that chemical? There are lots of interesting studies. Right. That maybe 50 to 75% of the effect of the pill you're taking is the placebo effect. So do we, can we just give people inert things? Might that work just as well? So there are lots of questions here, but I do want to respond to your basic question, which is, 
Do I think there's no place for chemicals? No. I think there is a place for chemicals, just we're way overusing them, super right. way overusing them, especially with kids where it's particularly unfair. And you guys probably know, unless it slipped your attention because so much, so much goes on, but about three or four months ago, Congress passed a terrible bill allocating billions of dollars to primary care physicians to help them now predict mental disorders in children. Mm. Really? So now you, the child, may be showing no symptoms of a mental disorder, but if, let's say, both your parents have, have received along the lines the diagnosis of a clinical depression, then you're at risk for a clinical depression. You can be medic medicated now, even though you're showing no signs of anything. So this is all bad. And even if the child insists there are no signs, there is no problem. That's, that's never been relevant. <laughs> <laughs> that's never been relevant, the, the child insisting that there's no problem. That I, that do, I definitely agree that it is so problematic, the medication of kids in many cases, um, you know, young kids with whether it's Ritalin or another uh, chemical with a powerful effect that we might not fully understand. Um, I definitely do agree there. And, do yeah, and let me just, just piggyback. Yeah. Uh, because so much of this is driven by the big pharmaceutical companies, the following game has to be played, and you'll, you'll get the logic of it in a second. Since no drug, no chemical has been at this moment approved for oppositional defiant disorder, one of the childhood diagnoses, if you, the practitioner, diagnose a child with oppositional defiant disorder, you're also extremely likely to add on ADHD as a second diagnosis because there, there are chemicals available. Uh. So kids are receiving second diagnoses just so they can be chemicalized. Mm. So here you are a parent hearing that your child not only is, is ODD but also ADHD and you have no idea that what's going on behind the scenes is this pressure to provide chemicals. So well, if so if I had a child um, that was exhibiting signs of ADHD and I took them to the doctor trying to figure out what to do, what would, instead of getting chemicals, like you say, what would you um, suggest that they do instead? There are two shorthand answers. One, one is better parenting skills or a better family. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for Which the parent hard to, to hear. Which is hard to say to a parent. Hard yeah. to say to a parent. But often, if you believe in family therapy, you believe in family dynamics, and you believe that the child is the identified patient in a family unit, and that there's stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And then the second answer, in addition to let's look at the family, is are you actually garnering or asking for the child's cooperation in what's going on as opposed to, so to speak, laying down the law? Most kids are not invited to cooperate in their help, whatever their help is. There's lots of interesting reading around better parenting, better communication skills with kids. That's the first line of offense, is looking at the family system and looking at what's going on. If the child's being bullied at school, why would the child not be anxious? If, we could name all of the circumstances and contexts where there ought to be a negative emotional reaction to what's going on. Yeah. Parents are yelling at the dinner table, if this, if that, how can the child not be reacting to that? So rather than looking at individual pathology, I think we have to go back to 
an idea that's sort of gone out of favor, and that is the family context and, and the social context. What's going on? What's going on for the child altogether? If, if there was anybody in the family with that willingness or that ability, typically it's a family therapist who has to do that work outside the system to look at the system and say, wow, you guys are yelling all the time. Why is your daughter cowering in the corner? Could it be that you're yelling all the time? Could there be some relationship? So typically it's an outside person who has to notice this. Yeah. Very hard for family members to notice. Yeah. My newest book that just came out a few weeks ago is called Overcoming Your Difficult Family. And it's about this stuff. It's about if you are in a family situation where the context is making you ill, well, here are the eight things, and then I name eight things. Here are the eight things you might try to make your family life better. Mm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I definitely hear you on that's a hard thing for a family to broach because it, it stands sort of oppositional to the idea that I imagine is probably um, a little bit of an easy way out for a parent of you know attributing some type of struggle to some disorder that is pathologized. And you know when a child is diagnosed with ADHD, it does seem to allow a parent to say, well, you know, these problems are the ADHD and remove their agency. Right. It's easier. And I think it's also very familiar because they probably have a diagnosis. They probably have it. They, they know the, they know the lingo in the game. They have their depression diagnosis or their anxiety diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They hear about these things in the media all the time. So we've just bought this idea that these mental disorders exist. That's why it's at that root place of disputing the very existence of mental disorders that I keep wanting to draw the line because if you buy the idea of mental disorders, then so much naturally flows from that. And I don't think... You, you guys know that the director of the uh, Institute for Mental Health some time ago said there's no such thing as depression or schizophrenia. And what he meant by that was nothing is added to the equation by adding those labels to phenomena. Mm -hmm. Nothing right. is added because we, we don't we have no tests to run. We have no treatments that are different from chemicals with powerful effects. We don't know what's going on. When, when somebody at that level makes an announcement like that and there's zero hearing, then we understand just how entrenched the problem is. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's sort of like these things aren't the phenomena themselves. They're attempts to describe the phenomena. Uh, that's right. They're attempts to describe the phenomena. And or I would say, I mean, I, I keep returning to when you say describe the phenomena, you're um, granting the describers good faith that they're actually trying to describe something. And I don't grant that good faith. I really think it's more a convenience and shopping catalog thing than an attempt, really? a, real, a real attempt at a taxonomy of something. Because if it were a real attempt to describe something, it would be implausible-impossible to forget about the idea of causation. It, it just would make no sense to forget about, the, to never... You probably know that the average time that a psychiatrist spends with a new patient nowadays is 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. What can go on in 15 minutes? All that can go on is the following transaction. I come in and say, I'm depressed. You say, yes, you're depressed, and you start writing a script. That's all that can go on in 15 minutes. There's no interest in what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, I, 
I can definitely see that it's just a, you know, an attempt at some description, but I, I find myself skeptical that it's purely, you know, an attempt to a profit motivated attempt to transact and not some attempt at describing at least a pattern. You don't think there's any element of trying to describe a experiment experience that many people relate to? No, I I don't, and I think I think the clue is in the title of the thing. If it were a real medical thing, it would be a diagnostic and treatment manual. It wouldn't be a diagnostic and statistical manual. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? The idea that things aggregate in a certain way, symptoms aggregate in a certain way. Here are two things that go together. Leg paralysis and eating ice cream. Why do they go together? Because polio hits in the summer when kids eat more ice cream. Connecting two things has to make some sense. Mm. There's no connection between eating ice cream and leg paralysis, except that there's an underlying phenomenon that we're talking about. Think about it for a second. Let's say that the four symptoms of depression that you dis- that you demonstrate are trouble sleeping, overeating, sadness. Let's just do three. Okay. Well, 90 million people are having an insomnia problem. Wh- why is that about depression? What's the connection? Why is that a symptom of clinical depression as opposed to one of the things happening to one out of two Americans who are going to bed anxious about things? Why is that a symptom of clinical depression? Just because if a person is sad, he or she probably also has sleep problems, but the sleep problems are caused by the fact that the person is sad and ruminating about things and brooding and what have you. So I guess, I guess I'm trying to convince you that the idea of symptom pictures is just a bad idea on the yeah. face of it. You could, you could put any five things together that, that appear together. I could, I could, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make up some silly thing about a drummer whose hands are calloused <laughs> and we could make up five yeah. symptoms yeah. and call it drumitis or something. Well, but does the lack of causality you're demonstrating necessarily yes. invalidate an attempt to describe because you could say if you're coming up with a group of things you could say crime ice cream swimming not going to school and you could say summer describes that right and it doesn't mean any of them are causing summer but it could describe them right (laughs) that's a little hard for me to answer the way you put that together I don't think that summer actually would be a useful label for polio, ice cream eating, swimming, going to the beach. I don't think that summer would do you, would make any sense there particularly. Personally, I don't think that summer would be a useful label for that set of phenomena that you just described. I don't know what you, what you would have added by saying summer. Well, the fact that all those things are happening might clue you into the fact that it's summer. I, th- I think I think maybe I could agree in a certain sense with with where you're going, and maybe mm-hmm. there's that percentage of sense where having a thing called depression is useful, so that we're not looking at lice or broken bones. So maybe, but because we're so 
off in the wrong direction with that. Yeah. Have trouble wanting to grant you the 10% agreement. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think we agree about more than you think. I, I, I agree that it's very problematic to treat these things as a binary label. And I agree that there's, you know, there's clearly no brain test or blood test that you're doing or an MRI that's conclusively showing that the real phenomena of depression is occurring. I just think I differ that. Oh, wait, not just conclusively, not at all. I, I don't, sure, I, sure. I, I got to be careful with language here because I don't think brain scans do us any good here, conclusive and mm -hmm. in inconclusive. I mean, I sure. could explain that more if we don't quite have time. Yeah. I just wanted to. Okay. Point to, yeah. Well, but I, I think want to point my point online. is that I, I largely agree with all of that. Yep. I think my, my only point of contention is I'm wondering, is there a use in description even so? And I know uh, you could well, say maybe, a lot more. Maybe about this will it. help. I think we've pathologized, because of the way this describing goes, we've mm -hmm. pathologized non-pathological phenomena. Okay. There's a big study right now going on at the University of Manchester in England around hearing voices in children. And the extent to which that's a common phenomenon, maybe in the 10% range, and the extent to which most of the voices are friendly and not a problem. Most people, when they hear hearing voices, start to go to that place of, oh, my God, schizophrenia. And that's because we have this label, schizophrenia, that's a scare label to begin with. Mm -hmm. So if we could just have the phenomena hearing voices and not attach the scary schizophrenia label, then we'd have a better conversation around, is hearing voices always bad? Or what's it about, etc.? That's why I think... The, there's phenomena, there's hearing voices, but the way in which they are, the way in which the phenomena is pathologized necessarily takes us down this road towards not only medication, but that this is a bad thing. Some of these things may not necessarily be bad things. What if you were born a little sad? Mm. We don't look at original personality at all as an idea in psychology. We have no, no way to talk about it. What if you were born a little more anxious? What that is that a mental disorder now forever, or is that who you are? Should we let's say that let's say that's part of your symptom picture? Symptom picture. Sure. Let's say you're a little sadder than the next person, a little more anxious than the next person. You have a mental disorder, or is that you? I I don't think just lumping those symptoms together does anybody any service, especially if those are features of your original personality. Yeah. Okay. It would seem that pathologizing that would make somebody not accept who they are and, and finding a way to become somebody different. Exactly. They're going to be challenged, but challenged is different from disordered. Mm -hmm. Right. They're different ideas. If you were born sadder or smarter or anything, born anything, two, two standard deviations outside the mean, if you were born any place, a couple of standard deviations outside the mean, you're going to be challenged. Right. Society won't know what to do with you, etc. So then you'll have challenges, but that's different. We should not put anything that's a standard deviation outside the mean and call it a disorder. Sure. Is that why you're drawn to working with creatives? Because often I think we society sees them as outside the norm. Well, I I'm not sure if that's why I'm drawn to them. I'm, okay. I'm drawn to them because I believe in what they do. I think that we could easily lose our creative human beings over time if we're not careful and that would be a great loss if we were just left with with other folks i think that would be a great loss so we need our idiosyncratic i would say stubborn 
creative folks uh, pointing fingers and making beautiful things and what have you. So uh, I'm, I'm in this racket because um, I like what they do. Not so much that they are different, but that I like what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, you know, speaking to what they do, what people do and purpose, I was reading, you know, on your website about the book you're currently working on, your next book, Humanizing the Helping Professions, and wondering if you could say a little bit about that and that mission. What is your, I guess, picture or what do you see as your purpose in, in that project? Uh, that book's title has changed. It's now called Humane Helping. Okay. It comes out in a few months from Routledge, which is a professional house. And whereas the future of mental health is for anybody and rethinking depression is for sufferers, humane helping is for practitioners, for professionals. And some of the goals are to, again, speak to the, the DSM and ICD controversies and help them understand it. Mainly, it's to help them manifest the courage to make small shifts in their practice away from the medical model and the expert talk model towards a helping model. Mm. So I, as I mentioned at the beginning, the medical model is the, the biggest problem, but the, but the top-down expert help model, I think, is its own kind of problem. Just to have two people leaning forward is a better thing than having one person leaning back and being way back here, crossing his arms, and etc. And, and in Europe, you know, yeah. a lot of old-fashioned psychoanalysis still goes on where I come in for five days a week and, and lay down on the sofa and do that thing. So I don't believe in that. I believe that that's a collusion in allowing me to stay there five days a week, year in and year out, and not actually be forced, be demanded to work on things. So to make that long story short, it's really to help providers move via baby steps, both to changing their practice in session change how they speak in the world about what's going on to stop using mental disorder language if they're willing to, and also to push back in meetings where if you're in that kind of group meeting, maybe it's some kind of treatment planning meeting where you push back and say, you know, I'm not sure about identifying little Bobby as the patient here. I wonder if we could look at the family system, etc. That is being the voice of change inside the different systems in which professionals find themselves. Um, I'm going to ask a very off topic and kind of selfish question here, but you've written over 50 books. How did you do that? <laughs> I was telling Spencer, I, you know, I talk about writing a book all the time, but like you hear you have written 50. So how, how have you done that? There are lots of ways to answer that. Um, the way I like to answer it nowadays is to quote Pavarotti. Pavarotti said, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline. It's devotion. And there's a big mm-hmm. difference. I'm not a very disciplined person. I couldn't white knuckle a book. I couldn't sit there out of discipline. But these things matter to me. I'm devoted to these issues and these folks. There are lots of synonyms, love, enthusiasm, curiosity, passion, devotion. I think most folks are not in love with their own work. They're, yeah. they're, semi, they're semi-interested in their own work. They're kind of half-interested or quarter-interested but not passionate about it. Right. And that's why they can't get to it because there are so many obstacles to doing the work, all the anxieties we could talk about, everyday resistance, all the other pressures. There's so much going on to make it hard to do the work that if you don't have real passion for the work or real love for the work, it's really hard to get it done. Mm-hmm. I think it's also probably jumping out on a ledge to be doing work that would be completely fulfilling in the way that you find yourself devoted to your work. I feel like 
given the infinite variation in human beings and their interests, it's yeah. unlikely that you're going to find working at a large company, for example, to be exactly in line with what that passion is for you. And it's a yeah. big risk to be going to business for yourself or to write for yourself. So it, yeah, I can definitely see what you, I, I buy that a large percentage of people are dissatisfied in that way. Yeah. Freud said, I don't know anything about writers, but I believe that blockage is always self-censorship. And that's another important piece. I think that writers surprisingly are afraid to have a voice. They're afraid to have their words out there for fear of being judged, scrutinized, criticized, or even just receiving silence, getting nothing back. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of that going on also. In addition to not being passionate, I think there's a lot of self-censorship and uh, fear of the reception of the work. Sure. Or doing it for reception rather than just to express what you really want to. Yep. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I, hey, I know you have to go, but I enjoyed talking. I know that uh, it was a little, there was a lot to cover and we didn't fully get in depth on everything, but I like, you know, I like hearing different perspectives and I do feel like there's a lot to learn from you, even if we're not going to agree on exactly. all points. Um, and, you know, I I think I just want to keep exploring the idea of not being completely plugged into the current paradigm of psychology. Um, and here, and that means hearing all of its, you know, different perspectives. So thanks yeah. for sharing yours. And, and just before I go, I think one thing I failed to say is the extent to which we don't know things. Mm -hmm. And and then that's part of our difficulties is that not just you and I and all of us, part of our difficulties is we don't know stuff. We don't know what causes these things. Yeah. Easy labeling, I don't think helps us to know but the fact of the matter is we don't know what causes a lot of these phenomena, and that disturbs us. The not knowing disturbs us. We all wish we knew more, <laughs> sure, but we don't. Mm, that's a good point. Is there anywhere that you want um, people to find you or any work that you would love for someone to pick up? I think coming to my main site, ericmazel.com, is the place to go, and that's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. That would be great. Okay. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. Yeah. Thank you, guys. All right. Talk to you later, Eric. Thanks. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. As always, to stay in touch with us by email and hear about the podcast behind the scenes, you can visit us on redeemingdisorder.com. And special thanks to Hetty, who donated our theme music from her song Shipwrecking Me from her latest album. Be sure to check it out at hettymusic.com. Join us next week, and until then, we hope you feel empowered to start a conversation of your own. Mm -hmm.